Where do you go to meet with God? Well, perhaps we could make the question the other way around. Where does God meet with you? It's not even a given that those questions point to the same place or the same experience, right? Where do you go to meet with God or where does God meet with you? Or maybe none of these questions make any sense to you. Maybe you have never gone somewhere with the explicit goal, desire, or expectation of meeting with God. Or maybe you never expected or reflected over where God might meet with you. Or perhaps you have had such an experience, but it was unexpected. And that which you have met or been, been met by was unnamed and unknown. Perhaps you walked into some space dedicated to the divine out of mere curiosity or by chance or with no expectation whatsoever, maybe just curious about the architecture or the place, and suddenly you have been met by something other something that you can't quite describe or grasp, and for a lack of words, you might call it a meeting with the divine. Or maybe you have suddenly found yourself in the presence of the divine in an altogether unexpected place, out in nature, for example. Or when the sound of a melody reaches into some part of you that defies your normal explanations about yourself. Or perhaps none of this makes any sense to you. And you either struggle with or dismiss the notion of this world we live in and move in as a space where such encounters might occur, might happen. But I won't speak of you. Uh, It would be unwise and improper for me to speak of you. I will, however, dare to speak a bit about the psalmist. And for the psalmist, the world is such a place, a place of encounter with God. Every summer in in OIC, we spend time with the psalms. The psalms are a collection of a compilation, a collection of songs and chants and prayers and poetry that we find right about in the middle of the Christian Bible as we have it today. And every summer we spend time with these songs, with these prayers, with these chants. And what's so special about the Psalms is is that they are that. (laughs) They are, in the middle of our scriptures, part of this gathering of writings that we understand to be part of God's revelation to us. So we understand them to be, in a way, one of the ways in which God speaks to us and reveals himself to us. But they are, in their vast majority, written to be addressed to God in the context of a community of faith and a practice of faith. So they, in a way, invite us to speak them, or at least to consider what it means to speak them in a practice of faith and of worship and of prayer. And they range 
they, they go over such a range of emotions and experiences of what it means to be human. And every summer we spend time with them, trying to reflect on what they mean for us today and what it might look like to bring them into our practice of faith as a community today. And in today's psalm, which is one of the psalms that carry the subscript of being of David, right, which means it was either written by David or under the house of David or in the tradition of David. But in today's psalm, the psalmist sings of, a world, of the world as a place of encounter with God. And I want to read it for you. And we've been doing this now in, the, in this time with the psalms that we're not putting the text on the screen as we usually do. Because we want to invite you to engage with the text a bit differently, we're, we're very used to reading things and engaging our brain in a certain way uh, when we read stuff. But the Psalms emerge from an oral tradition, tradition in which you would listen and be sensible to the words and to the poetry and to what's going on. And I want to invite you to, in a small way, engage with a Psalm like that. Uh, if you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to do so. You don't need to. If you really feel like you need to read this with your own eyes, I will be reading from Psalm 24, and I will not stop you from reading it on your phone. Uh, but I want to read it for you. Psalm 24. Of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. So sings the psalmist. And we could divide the poetical and the theological structure of this psalm. Psalm 24, into three parts. The first part goes from verse 1 and 2, the first two verses, and they establish God as the creator of all, so that everything is the Lord's in the sense that everything is ascribed to this creating power. That's these two first verses. And then the second part that goes from verse 3 to 6, it speaks of humans entering into God's space, so to say. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? And then the third part goes from verse 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, 
you gates be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And they speak of God entering into the human sphere, the human space. Now, in one sense, this has to do more with the direction of the movement and less with the space per se, since all of this happens in the context that is established in this first part, the context of creation. But it also has to do with space. And if all of this sounds confusing, it makes a lot of sense in the faith tradition of the psalmist. Two geographical locations are central to the faith of ancient Israel from where this psalm emerges, and they help us understand the dynamics in this psalm. The first geographical space spot is Mount Sinai. So as the scripture tells the story, after being delivered from Egypt by by the God of their ancestors, the descendants of Jacob, they wander into the desert following Moses, and eventually they camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, Moses climbs the mountain with the explicit goal of meeting with God. He goes up to meet with God. And the mountain is covered with cloud and thunder as a sign and a reminder that the space Moses is entering is a space of encounter with the holy God, and only Moses may enter. And from that space of encounter with God, Moses conveys the laws and the regulations for the people of Israel and the guidelines for building the tabernacle and the worship life of the people. Now, the tabernacle is not a, a word we use very often in out-of-churchy settings, but the tabernacle is a tent that functions as a kind of a moving temple and a sign of God's presence with his people. So wherever the people of Israel would go after that, the tabernacle is with them and is a sign of God's presence with them. So the tabernacle continues to mark this separate space where one goes to meet with God. And eventually, the tabernacle becomes, in a sense, the temple in Jerusalem. This is the second geographical location, Mount Sinai and the temple in Jerusalem, which is a temple on the hills. And you see that, we talked about this before here also in this, uh, when talking about the Psalms, that one in the biblical language, one always ascends to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on the high, highlands and the mountains. And one always goes up to Jerusalem and up to the temple, to the place of meeting with God. These images are very strong for the people of Israel. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. But the language here, it might confuse us. Especially if we know something of how the life of the people developed and all of the rituals of purification that were demanded of the people when they came to temple sacrifices 
and to the celebrations. And if you know something of the story, you know that they had a series of rituals of cleansing so that they could be part in the ceremonial life in the temple, the life of worship. So this might sound, when we read this, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, it might sound like a set of individual requirements that one must meet in order to enter into the space of encounter with God. Yet, as commentator James Luther Mays notes, this is a bit geeky, but it's important, the adjectives clean and pure do not belong in the Old Testament vocabulary of ritual purification. They are ethical terms. In other words, there are terms connected to how the people were to live as people of God in relation to each other. In relation to each other. And also the term vindication in verse 5, it may be, mis be misleading because we may take it to be individual vind vindication, right? So a rather crass simplification of what I'm saying here is that we could understand this as if I follow these set religious requirements, I can enter into God's presence and then God will have my back and have my enemies pay. But the, the term that is translated as vindication, it's l more literally translated as righteousness. The notion here is not payback. The notion is addressing unrighteousness so that there may be righteousness. And again, in the context here, this is an inherently social and communal understanding. What I'm saying with all of this is that this movement in the psalm towards and into the space of encounter with God was a movement that was profoundly shaped and informed by how those in this faith tradition of the psalmist were to encounter each other as fellow human beings. This movement towards the place of encounter with God was shaped and informed by and informed and shaped the way in which this community of faith was to meet each other as fellow human beings and as people of God. Then comes the second part of the psalm. And the second part of the psalm envisions God entering into the human space. And here the psalmist envisions God entering Jerusalem. So Jerusalem doubles down in the imagery of the psalm as both the place where one goes to meet God, because Jerusalem is the place of the temple, but also the place where God comes to meet with humankind. Because Jerusalem is not only the temple, Jerusalem is the city and the representation of the people spread through the valleys and the hills of Israel. In the same way as the king represented the people, Jerusalem represents uh, the nation, to use a more modern term, but still. So God coming to Jerusalem 
is God coming to God's people. God coming to Jerusalem is God coming to God's people. And the people in the psalm are personified in Jerusalem. When the psalm says, lift up your heads, O gates. There are no gates, there are no heads on the gates to be lifted. Lift up your heads and welcome the coming of God, the coming of the King of glory. So this is not the coming of an invading conqueror, but this is a God who comes to God's own people, who welcome God into the reality of their city and therefore into the reality of their nation and of the whole land. So they welcome God into the reality of their social, economical, artistic, religious life. Maybe you can see already in the faith tradition of this psalm the lines of what we might call a spirituality of encounter. A spirituality of encounter where the encounter with God, whether when we seek God or when God seeks us, the encounter with God shapes and is shaped by our encounter with each other. And shapes and is shaped by how those encounters are called to echo and to dwell in righteousness. But I want to take us further. I want to go deeper into this poetical landscape of the scripture that the Psalms invites us into. And I want to bring into this poetical and theological landscape some new images, sort of overlay them. And these are images of Christ. For we come to this psalm through the revelation of Christ. We, we ask if we might sing them because Christ invited us to sing the songs of God in a way. So I want to bring these images of Christ. And to the image of verse 3 to 6, this image of who may go to the mountain, to the place of encounter with God, I want to bring two mountain images of Christ. The first is from Matthew. And when Matthew wants to tell us about Jesus teaching the people, and especially about Jesus teaching the people about what it means to live with each other, Matthew sets Jesus on a mountain. And maybe you've heard about this chunk of the Gospel of St. Matthew described as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a very strong image for that context in which a teacher sits on a mountain and delivers words of how we are to live with each other. Here, he's being shown as a Moses figure. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount flips upside down a lot of our expectations and calls us to a kind of spirituality that is deeply rooted and expressed in how we show love and grace to each other and how we are attentive 
to the cry of the poor. And how we fight against the temptation of greed. And how we work to not be controlled by the temptation of thinking that are that if we have enough of material possessions or whatever it may be, that we got life figured out, figured out. We don't have time for a sub-preaching under Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I invite you to read, uh, if you have the time, Matthew 5 through 7, more or less. But this Jesus who sits with the people on the mountainside and says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. The other mountain is Golgotha. It's the hill outside the gates of Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified, condemned as a political traitor, as a religious pariah, hanged on a cross, the Son of God, God himself, saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Here's my body given for you. Share it. Here's my body shed for you. Share it. The one who climbs the mountain and brings in his own body the call for a kind of righteousness that crosses. And then we have another image to the image of verse 7 to 10, right? Isn't that? Lift up your gates. O Jerusalem, to welcome the King of glory. And here I want to bring the image of Jesus again riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Jerusalem hails him as king. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting these things at him while he walks or rides into the city And instead of going to the temple, instead of going to the place of political power, he goes to the lepers. He goes to the hungry. And then he leaves the city in the evening to Bethany, to the villages, to sit and have meals with the normal people, with the tax collectors and the prostitute and the lame and the the me's of the world, people like me. There's a spirituality here where our meeting with God and God's meeting with us has everything to do with how we meet each other. Where whatever whatever we do with the temple (laughs) is empty, if the Spirit isn't in our encounters with the people, with each other. A God who is concerned with righteousness and therefore shapes us into people that meet each other with grace, with kindness, with transformation. As Christ moves beyond Jerusalem, dying outside its gates and having meals with the broken in Bethany, emerging from the grave to move among the earth and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
we are called to a spirituality of encounter where our encounter with God, both when we seek God and find ourselves sought by God, is a spirituality that shapes and is shaped by our encounter with the other. A spirituality where the call for clean hands is a call for washing feet. Where the call for a pure heart is a call for showing love and grace. Where our meeting with this divine among us is a meeting that shapes us for each other. And that that's where the expressions of righteousness take place and shape and fill the earth. And perhaps we need psalms like Psalm 24. Psalms that invite us to move around the world in such a way that we may believe that we may meet God and be met by him, that we may yearn for it and sing of it, and that it may take root in how our songs become our words to our neighbor and how our hands lifted in worship become the hands that embrace or that help out. This is the spirituality of community and transformation. A spirituality in which the bread and the wine is shed around a table. What does that do to our visions of kings and religions and gates and walls. What image of God do we bear in our bodies and in our words? Yet we are the people who declare that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. If that is the God we serve, how shall we meet him? Perhaps the invitation in the end of this psalm, this reflection, is simple, difficult, but simple. We need to learn to look around and ask what it means to meet God there. What that looks like, I don't know. I guess we'll have to look around. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. To the sorrows of today and the challenges of tomorrow that he may bring you peace. So go. In the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and serve the Lord, and serve the world.
and serve each other joyfully. Amen.